if you're visiting our guests here this morning. My name is Jordan, and I have the opportunity of pastoring with our NDG congregation. <clears throat> Do you have clear visibility? Do you see your circumstances clearly, reality clearly? You know, the other week I flew back with my family from being away on Christmas break for several weeks and we came into Montreal into the airport and picked up our car. You know, it's been several weeks and we're driving home and it's late at night and as it is in Quebec, salt and sleet get kicked up onto the windshield and I go to turn on my windshield wipers and nothing. Just the passenger side kind of going like this. And so I'm driving like this, you know, it's all, all gummed up, kind of crazy. And you know, it struck me, we are in a series on Revelation and the book as a whole is functioning something like this, isn't it? It's saying, look, the Holy Spirit through this book is saying, look, do you see clearly? Do you have clear visibility? Or is the immediacy of your circumstances clouding and distorting your view of reality? Because if it is, my word can give you the clarity and the perspective that you need in the middle of your circumstances. Well, what were some of John's circumstances? John is the author of this book, Revelation. What were some of his issues? Well, John was exiled on an island called Patmos. He was one of the 12 apostles. You might've heard of them. All, by now, all of the apostles have died or been killed for their faith. And so there is John alone in exile. That was some of his circumstance. On a larger scale, the church, the Christian church was in heavy persecution. In the second wave of persecution, some tens of thousands of Christians had been killed for their faith. Imagine that. Tens of thousands. What would that have, what effect would that have on our city? Tens of thousands killed for their faith at the hands of Roman swords. Others, when the Roman sword had been put to their neck, deconstructed and disappeared into the cult of Roman imperialism. And so John had lots of difficulties, lots of difficult circumstances, reasons to be down. And in this text, you do see him weeping, but you don't see him just weeping. You actually see John, by the end of Revelation, move to a place of worship. And so the question then becomes, how could John move from a place of weeping to worship? How is his focus taken off of the immediacy of his circumstances and led into greater worship? Because maybe you're here and you are the only believer in your family and you feel alone. Or maybe you look around and you balk at the sweeping cultural changes that are taking place. You have close friends, dear friends, who have deconstructed and disappeared into the cult that is Western secularism. And so often when that happens, our hearts grow faint. And as our hearts grow faint, so does our worship. And so it's so easy for our circumstances to cloud and distort our view of reality. But this is why the Holy Spirit has given us this book, this revelation, because he wants us to see clearly. 
to have a God perspective on reality, to see on earth as it is in heaven so that we can live on earth as it is in heaven. And so what did John see then that led him from weeping to worship? Well, John saw a throne and he saw a lamb. The throne, that'll be chapter four. We're working our way through Revelation as a book. Last week, you would have heard chapter two and three. The throne, chapter four, and the lamb, chapter five. If you have your Bible, I'd invite you, follow along with me. We're gonna be going bit by bit through the text. And I'll just pray again, Holy Spirit, this is your revelation. Would you open our eyes that we might see you more clearly? here as it is in heaven. Amen. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. And after this, I look and behold, it's a command. The Spirit is saying, look, what is capturing your attention? Whatever it is, look, behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. This is amazing. Heaven is open. Where's John? Well, John is exiled on a rock, an island in the Mediterranean Sea on Patmos. And yet, where is John? John is being called up and into heaven. What does that mean? Heaven is then not just in the sweet by and by pie in the sky. Heaven is here and now it's an overlapping dimension to our dimension that God is able to call John in that place of exile into heaven at once and at the same time. God is unveiling what's happening in the heavenly reality so that John can live more clearly in his earthly reality. A door standing open in heaven. Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Well, what is the after this? Well, like Dwight outlined in the first week of this series, he sort of laid out some parts of the book. After this is probably not chronological. It's not necessarily chronological. These visions are sequential. And so the after this is referring to, well, after the vision of the seven churches that you saw last week or in the last chapter. I will show you what must take place after this. And in verse two, it says, and at once I, John, was in the spirit. John was in the spirit. I had a friend, a, a relative I loved dearly over the holidays say that John must have been on shrooms or psychedelics to have a mystical spiritual experience like this. And I want to just say, no, John wasn't on psychedelics. John was in the spirit. He didn't need to hack part of his brain to have a mystical, spiritual experience. How reckless. No, he was just in the word and in the prayer and the Lord's day and the spirit ministered to him in that place with his manifest presence. Isn't that beautiful? And I've said it before and I want to say it again. Let this be true of us to let's not just be content with God's omnipresence that he's everywhere. Let us pursue and plead and chase after the manifest presence of God. 
draw near to him and he will draw near to you. Let that be true of us. Let us settle for nothing less than encounters with God in word and in prayer and God met him there. Now was John's experience unique? Yes, this is authoritative revelation. But the manifest presence of God doesn't need to be unique to John. You can pursue and encounter God too. Let that be true of us. John was in the spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Years ago, I was in Nova Scotia and we had gone to the beach and I parked my car on a hill nearby and we were down along the rocks walking and we heard a rushing sound and a crashing sound and we looked up behind us to see my car hurtling down the hill towards a cliff we were standing under nobody in the driver's seat somehow the brake had become disengaged and i think sometimes we feel like our universe is just like that hurtling down the hill no one in the driver's seat chaos is ensuing a cliff ahead church deconstructing and we wonder well in the case of my car that day you're probably wondering <clears throat> it came over the cliff two first wheels and high ended on a rock and stopped it's very thankful we had another car with us we happened to be in two groups and a tow rope so we pulled it back everything was fine i drove it home what do you know unbelievable there was no one in the driver's seat, and yet what did John see that led him to worship? John saw the throne with one seated on it. What a relief! There's someone in the driver's seat of the universe. It's not empty, it's occupied, it's not hurtling out of control. No, the one who's seated on there is seated. He's not fiddling his thumbs, he's not fretting about, he is seated. He is in sovereign control. You can rest. The driver's seat of the universe is occupied. And it's occupied not just by anyone. Verse 3 says, And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. These are gemstones, colorful. In other words, the throne was occupied by beauty itself. You'd say it like this. God is not gray. God is not bland. God is not dull and boring and plastic. No. God is amazing. God is alive. God is colorful. God is beauty and power itself. And if you've begun to think that God is somehow gray, you just might not be seeing him very clearly. The throne is occupied by beauty itself, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of emerald. This throne exudes the color of God's faithfulness. The rainbow, remember, a sign of the judgment of God, a flood of judgment, and yet through that judgment, he rescues and he saves and he makes a promise that he will never flood again, and he is faithful to that promise. The throne exudes the color of God's faithfulness. He's faithful and true. And then verse 5, And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. 
And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven, remember seven symbolizes completeness, the completeness of the spirit of God. And before the throne, there was as it were a sea of glass like crystal. The throne exudes God's power then over evil. See, both of these images, that of the thunder and the lightning and that of the sea of glass, speak of his sovereign power over evil. The, the, the sea of glass, well, what, what's that? And, and scripture, the sea of glass is where evil emerges from. Chaos ensues. Leviathan and Job emerges from the sea. We're going to see later in Revelation a beast emerging from the sea. We also see in Revelation, it's not just where evil and chaos emerge from. It's what subdues it. Think Red Sea subduing of evil or think jesus at the sea of galilee he speaks to and calms it and just like jesus calmed the sea of chaos once he will calm it forever in fact he already has and yet so often what? We're so clouded by the immediacy of our circumstances, right? From Paul Pot to, to Putin, right? From the KKK to, to Klaus Schwab, if you have it, the immediacy of our circumstances, they cloud our view of reality and we see evil thrashing about here. And yet the spirit must call us up and give us a clear vision of heaven and say, look, look, you might see evil thrashing about on earth, chaos ensuing, but what you need to see is that up here in heaven it's like when you open your tent going camping in early in the morning and look at it across the lake it's like glass it's like glass that's why evil is thrashing about here because it's like glass there the throne exudes god's power over evil let's go back to verse 4 chapter 4 and Verse four, around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on those thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. We have this throne surrounded by 24 likely angels representing the 12 tribes and the 12 disciples. It is saying then, of the, it's talking of the spiritual unity of the people of God across time and space. And you see them circling the throne in worship, worship to Jesus, this throne of God. In other words, it's so much, friends, it's so much bigger than us. It's so much bigger than me, our little tribe, our little church evangelicalism is so much bigger than us. It's about him. And we see the unity of the people of God giving worship to him, sharing in his glory. They have their thrones respectively, white garments, golden crowns. Okay, these are symbolizing power and glory and riches. And so to those distracted, this is a pastorally prophetic letter to those in the first century, distracted, those who were distracted by Roman affluence, literally crowns, literally white robes. It's speaking to them, but it's also speaking to us. 
literally distracted by our own set of affluence and riches. It's saying, look, look, if you could only see, you are represented in heaven by this angelic host that is wearing these golden, glorious crowns and white robes. If you could only see, you would that all of this would pale in comparison to you. There is something so much better. Why are you distracted by that? Why are you caught up by that? Go all in for Jesus. Let his vision of reality capture your attention. This is as it is in heaven so that you can live on earth. And the throne is surrounded by these four creatures from verse 6 to 8 of chapter 4. I'm not going to read it, but four in Revelation, symbolic of universal or wide-sweeping, think four points on a compass. So you have these four living creatures. They represent all of animate creation. And all of animate creation in this passage is doing what we were made to do, which is what? Worship. We all worship. And here, all of animate creation is giving God the glory. And it's done using these symbols of power, lion and ox and eagle and so on. And you're like, what's going on with that? Well, commentators point out that these symbols, these animal symbols, like then and like today, are symbols of power, prosperity, perseverance. Think in the Roman Empire, the eagle on flags and wreath, their power, the lion in the British Empire. What's it in Canada? Yeah, the beaver, right? The stock market has the bull, right? These are all symbols of power and prosperity and perseverance, but they have become idolatrous. And so what do we see here? They're subverted. That all thrones and all imperial animals and all rulers and all crowns, whatever power, whatever idolatry you think of it, now if you could only see in heaven, they are all subverted and brought into worship of the one who sits on the throne. Wow. Whether by faith or by force, all of creation will worship God and sing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Verse nine, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. There is this this contagiousness to the praise, it is spreading. It is like these outward working concentric circles drawing us into worship of God who is worthy, who is worthy of our worship, who lives, it says, forever and ever. And John needed to be reminded of that. John needed to be reminded that, that persecution and being in exile was not forever. Caesar was not forever. The Roman Empire was not forever. Nations will rise and fall. Ideologies will come and go. Canada will come and go. Secularism will come and go. But you know who will always last, who is forever and ever? Him who sits on the throne. He stands forever and ever. Have you thought of what this might mean for the things that you're facing? both in the first century as it is now. You know, <clears throat> my grandparents, when they died, 
had lived through two world wars, a drought, the threat of nuclear destruction, communism, all of these things in their lifetime seem like showstoppers, huge issues. And now what are they? They seem to us like a vapor, temporal. And yet you know what wasn't? In their case, their faith in Jesus. That lived on. It's solid as a rock, held faithful by the one who is on the throne and lives forever and ever. And so when you lose sight, when the immediacy of this, your circumstances clouds and distorts your perspective, I want to call you to remember, remember God on the throne. See, what did John see that led him to worship a throne, a throne that will never end, that goes on forever and ever, that's occupied by beauty itself, that's it's not gray, that exudes God's faithfulness and power over evil, that sea of glass that's completely calm, surrounded by the unity of the people of God across space and time, sharing in his glory forever and ever and ever. Man. Your circumstances will not give you a clear view of reality. Only the throne will. And we need these revelation wipers to help move us into that place of worship and sight, to help us to sing, right? And they sing in here. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. John, wow, sees worship. He sees the throne. What else did John see that led him to worship? The Lamb, chapter 5. And then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. The scroll is building on a prophetic scene from the book of Daniel. We won't get into it. The scroll represents the judgment and the redemption plan of God. God's purposes for history rolled up, sealed up. It's, it's classified. It's, it's undisclosed. Okay. That's the scroll and verse two it says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. In other words, the angel is asking, who is fit to unfold the judgment and redemption plan of God? Who is fit to bring history to its conclusion? Who is the power to do that? Who has the wisdom to do that, the goodness to do that? And John is captured in this unfolding worship moment so much so he begins to weep and weep loudly because verse four, it says, no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. No one was fit. No angel there was fit. John, even as an apostle, knew he wasn't fit. He knew he wasn't worthy. He knew his attempts at trying to set things right only made things worse, especially pre-Jesus, right? He knew that if there was ever going to be justice, there was also going to need to be judgment, and he would be a part of that. And yet, verse 5, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. 
weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll in its seven seals. In other words, you can be at peace. But you must see first the one who is fit. You must go to him. There is a lion who has conquered and he has declassified the judgment and redemption plan of God. The lion who has conquered. And so John is hearing that. And so he's hearing that and then he turns to look back at the throne where he expects to see the lion, the conquering one. Verse 6, in between and in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lion. No a lamb standing as it had been slain. This is the ultimate subversion. John hears lion, but when he turns, he sees lamb. What? What is going on here? The lamb will obviously represents Jesus. John the Baptist, remember, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What's going on here? This is the paradox. This is the subversion. This is what Christianity coalesces in. Jesus. This is how Jesus conquered. Jesus was the Lion of Judah who conquers who beco- through becoming the Lamb in self-sacrificial love. What? What? The moment of his crucifixion, the moment that seemed like it was defeat and death and the victory of hell and evil was actually the moment of his victory. He triumphs not by going around it, but by going through it. Jesus overcame by taking it head on. This is the wondrous paradox of Christianity, that the conquering lion is the slain lamb. And you know, seeing the slain lamb in heaven changes the way that you will see everything on earth. It will stoke your worship. It will reset your life. This symbol, the lamb, it comes up again and again in Revelation. More than 20 times you're going to see Jesus referred to as the lamb. Why? Because it wants to call us back to this vision of chapter 5. It's like this becomes the key. This is so important, seeing the slain lamb. Let me unpack this for us in case you missed it. Look where the slain lamb is standing in resurrection power. Is he off to one side? Is he somewhere over here? No, it says he's in the midst of the throne. In other words, he's at the center of the living creatures. He's at the center of the angels. He's at the center of all creation. He's juxtaposed with the one who is at the center, the Lord God Almighty. In other words, the slain lamb is the Lord God Almighty. He is God, and he is worthy of our worship. That is where he is. And so what does, what does this show us, this slain lamb that is standing? Well, it shows us that the one in the driver's seat of the universe is not some cold and distant creator, some evil and vindictive God. No, he's one who drew near and entered into it and came close to us and gave himself in love. That's what's at the center of the universe. That is who governs space and time, who holds it in his nail-scarred hands. Oh, and some of you are afraid to approach him. And as God You should be. He is the Lord God Almighty. You would be undone if you came 
into his presence. But I want to point something out here. Look at this. There's a verb tense here. It says, I saw the lamb standing as if slaughtered. It's like it's, he's slaughtered. It's in, it's in the present continuous tense. The lamb standing as if slaughtered. He's standing, bleeding out, and yet alive forevermore. What? Never to die again. What? What does this say? This is saying that at the center of all things, this lamb standing and slaying this lamb, standing and yet bleeding out, is a life-giving fount of eternal mercy that he is continuously giving himself and mercy for you. That's what's at the center of this universe. That's what's at the core. And so, well, yes, we rightly think I can't approach him. If there's going to be justice, I'm going to need to be judged. Yes, that is true. Yes, we mess history up. Yes, we get distorted by the immediacy of our circumstances. Yes, some of us might have deconstructed and disappeared into the cult that is Western secularism and an imperialism at that. And yet, what do we see at the center of the universe? A life-giving fount of mercy that what? Will never run on dry that is always available for you. Oh, if you would just only come, if you would only just bow the knee in repentance in front of the slain lamb, you would see you could receive of that fount of mercy. Come, there's mercy without price, mercy that never ends, mercy that goes on and on and on that is available to you if you will just bow and turn to him. See, John knew he wasn't fit. You are not fit. But he alone was fit. The slain lamb was fit. And so you can approach the throne of life-giving mercy through him, the slain lamb, and receive mercy, mercy, mercy without end. How do you do that? Say, Jesus, I need you. Do it. Don't wait. There's mercy without end. You will change your life. The slain lamb standing at the center of heaven shows us that there is a life-giving fount of mercy available for us. It also shows us that he enters into our suffering. Jesus was a man of sorrow and acquainted with much grief. And so as you enter into the heart of the universe, as you approach his core, as you come into the heart of Jesus, my friend, you will too experience suffering. You will too experience persecution. Jesus promised that to his followers. And yet what? Persecution and suffering is no surprise to the followers of the slain lamb. You know what is true? No one ever cared for me like Jesus. His faithful hand has held me all this way. That is what is true. And he invites you to come near in your suffering and in your hurt and in your trauma and in your difficulty because he wants to be with you in it and comfort you in your suffering. This is also what the slain lamb at the center of the universe tells us. Oh, there is mercy without end, a life-giving fount. There is compassion without end. He wants to meet you in your pain. The self-sacrificial slain land standing in heaven, bleeding out for you. What a picture. What a picture. The key to revelation. You know what else this means? You know what else this means? This is what true power looks like. 
It's not an eye for an eye. It's not hate for hate. It's not squishing your enemies. It's not the lion who came as the lion to devour everyone and hurt everyone. It's the lion who came as the lamb to be hurt on their behalf. Oh my God. Wow. This is what true power is. This is so subversive. This is so unexpected. This is why we need the eyes of revelation to show us this. We are not going to see us on, on its own. We need this to uncloud our perspective, to, to remove the crap in our vision, to see how it is in heaven so that we might live on earth as it is in heaven. Thanks be to God. And so how are we to live on earth in this way? Well, it's as Jesus taught. Think about it. Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. The slain lamb stands at the center of the universe and informs us what reality is really like, what true power is really like. And you might have doubts about that. You might, this might seem somehow foolish or weak, but Daryl Johnson in his commentary helps me see that this lamb is no dummy. He's no pushover. He's no softy. Look what it says in this text. It says he has seven horns with seven eyes. And you're like, what's all that about? It's super grotesque, you know? It's symbolism. Okay, seven completeness, horns, power, eyes, wisdom. He is completely and perfectly wise and powerful. This is true power. This is true wisdom, Paul would say, the slain lamb. Wow, and this is how he chose to exercise it, in self-giving love. Oh my goodness, we see this and we cannot help but worship. And in our text, Jesus, he then takes that scroll and there is an explosion of worship in heaven. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Wow, this is vision coming out in worship of a multi-ethnic kingdom of priests giving glory to God, reigning with him over the earth. In other words, this earth, Montreal, will not always be as we see it now. It will be renewed. It will be restored by God, and we will reign with him someday in the future. But this also applies in the present. 
This is a now and not yet text. What do I mean by that? Well, think about something like Ephesians 1, where Jesus is seated in heavenly places above all rule and power and dominion and authority, and all things have been subjected to him. And then Ephesians 2, what? We are seated with him in heavenly places. In other words, he is over all things and we are under him over all. There is a now and not yet sense to our rule with the slain lamb. We will reign on the earth and we reign on the earth. And so what does it look like then? What does it look like to reign with the slain lamb to partake in the victory of God? What does that look like? doesn't mean that we become CEO or mayor. Not necessarily. You know, if you're asking this, you've, you've missed it. No. We reign with the Lamb in that we conquer in the same way that the Lamb conquers. We conquer in the same way the Lamb conquers. Well, what's that? We reign as slain. We reign as slain. Okay, we absorb suffering. We stand in the face of evil, like our risen Lord. And there's countless examples from the church that I could give. Let me give you a more contemporary one. My sister Maranatha. So many examples. This is from my sister. My sister worked in tropical nursing. It's not about her. But she did a stint. She did this emergency medicine and tropical nursing program. And then she went off to Togo to do a stint working with the Togolese people. And she was working there with a doctor named Todd Uh, DeGregor. He was a surgeon. And Todd DeGregor had been felt called by God from America to move his wife and four kids uh, to Togo to live among the Togolese. He gave up um, the wealth of being a doctor in America, the comfort, I suppose, of being there. It was not an easy life living among the Togolese. He, he worked six days a week from dawn to dusk. He was the only surgeon within a huge range of area. So he did as much as he possibly could with the time that he had, and my sister was there working with him. And uh, after she came home, about two months later, she heard he was sick. And I joined my sister, along with many other people, in prayer for, for Todd. And tragically, Todd passed away. And in the, the difficulty, the tragedy of this situation, my sister genuinely wondered, why, why would God call somebody to Togo to give up everything with his wife and kids and work so hard and then just take him out. Like he just died. It just seems so weak. It just seems so foolish. God, why would you allow this to happen? And then the news came a couple weeks later because Todd was a foreigner and his body was flown back to Germany and they did an autopsy. They couldn't figure out why he died. It seems so strange. And they discovered in Todd a rare outbreak that Todd had become the first person in the region to be infected by the Lassa fever. They didn't know it was there up until this point. And because Todd died, many Togolese lives ended up being saved, okay? He, Todd, stopped suffering in his tracks by absorbing it into himself. And so what looked like foolishness, what looked like being weak, ended up in so many valuable lives being saved. And let me tell you this, Todd is just one example of what it looks like to reign with the slain lamb, to reign as the slain. Do you see that? 
Isn't that amazing? You know, you can't do this by yourself. Only a life tapped into that life-giving, eternal fount of mercy in heaven can sustain this, right? It needs to be the eternal Holy Spirit that empowers you and carries you along to do that. You cannot bleed out on your own. You will just literally, quite honestly, be swallowed alive. But Todd has, was living for the slain land, and you are called to do that as well. What does that look like? Well, G.K. Beale says this in his commentary. To conquer doesn't just look like dying faithfully. It looks like living faithfully. To conquer doesn't just look like dying faithfully. It looks like living faithfully. That is, we absorb suffering. As Christians, we stand it in the face of evil. So maybe as a student, that might look like sharing Jesus with a friend who's going through a difficult mental health struggle entering into the suffering with them. Or maybe as a student, it looks like standing for truth in a post-truth culture. That's not easy. Or going the extra mile in your studies because you believe God has called you to that field to be a blessing and to seek his kingdom first. Or maybe as a parent being the one who gets up in the middle of the night to change the diaper instead of your partner. That's what it looks like to reign as slain. Or in a conflict, being the one that the buck stops at. That you don't return evil for evil. Rather, you know that vengeance is his, God's, and he will replay. So you can seek a blessing and seek justice appropriately. These are all ways it looks like to reign as the slain. Romans 8.37 says, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Yea, and all these things we are more than conquerors. It might look like weakness. It might look like foolishness. But let me tell you, this is the true power and the true wisdom and the true victory of God working through his people. A kingdom of priests reigning as slain. Lord, help us to see that. And then we worship. Verse 11, I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands sang with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four and living creatures said, amen. And they fell down and worshiped. Oh my goodness, doesn't this lead us into a place of worship? Let me invite our worship team back up. When you lose sight, friends, hear this, hear this. When you lose sight, when the immediacy of your circumstances clouds your view of reality and Satan attempts to steal your worship, God wants to open your eyes by his Holy Spirit to see him, to see the throne and the lamb sitting on it, to see that at the center of the universe stands the slain lamb, a fountain of never-ending life-giving mercy, the one who holds history in his hands, the nail-scarred hands, the only 
hands that are fit to bring history to its conclusion. The one who enters into our suffering. That is the one who sits on the throne. That is the one who reigns. He is worthy of our worship. How can we not give him praise? Is there anything else worth praising in this life? Is there any riches worth praising? Is there any other honor worth pursuing? Is there any other affluence that captures your attention? Oh, come, come and behold the slain lamb on the throne. He is there for you and he wants to meet you in that place. This is a vision of reality as it is right now in heaven, not just as a distant future thing, an overlapping dimension to our own. We want to see heaven as it is so that we can live on earth as it is. Will you stand with me? Let's worship together. Jesus is worthy of our worship. Is he not? Is he not worthy? I want to pray with us now. I know that even as I speak this, as I give glory to King Jesus as worthy of our worship, things stir up inside of us. Things come up against that and say, no, don't give him that. Hold on to that. It's your precious. But you must let it go. You must release everything into his hands or you will not see the slain lamb as worthy and as glorious as he is. His presence will not be manifest to you in the same way. And that's what I want for you. I want him to know you to know him in all of his fullness, not holding back, all in for Jesus, leading out for him like in the image of the slaughtered lamb, and yet standing because he sustains you from his life-giving fount of mercy, the eternal Holy Spirit. So let's pray for that now. Will you join me in prayer? Holy Spirit, come now, I pray, and bring conviction in this room. Bring encouragement in this room. If you feel worshipful, I just invite you to raise your hands and surrender to King Jesus right now. Jesus, you are worthy of it all. You are worthy of our worship. This text exalts you in such a way we have no, no hope but to just bow and bend the knee. We are undone by the glory of your presence. And so I pray, Jesus, that we would be all in for you, that we would not hold back, that we would give it all, that we would bleed out for you all of our time, all of our finances, all of our energy are worthy of worship to you. I pray now that you bring conviction. If there's anybody here who has tried to hold their hand back, who's tried to, 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 to keep from you giving just the 40% or the 50%, Jesus, you would bring them to 100%. You say, worth it. You're Jesus, you're worth it. Whatever was standing in the way, I give it back to you now. I surrender it in Jesus' name. I will not hold on to this thing. I want to see your glory, and I want to see it now. Manifest yourself to me, most gracious and holy creator of this universe, the one who stands on the throne. I pray, Lord, also for encouragement. Some of, some of us here are feeling like we've just bled out for Jesus, like we got nothing left. We've given it all. We have no more energy. We don't know how you're going to take us through to the next step. And I pray that they would see you as the, the lamb standing in heaven. Yes, you're bleeding out, but you are still standing because you are a mortal God whose eternal life-giving spirit can sustain us. I pray that a wind of the Holy Spirit would come down and fortify your people to live all out for you. Let us reign as the slain. Glory to God in the highest. We hold nothing back. Praise be to Jesus, ruler of this universe. We love you and we need you. And I pray that this time would be a place of radical worship. That the surrender would not cease until we are fully all in for you, King Jesus. We reign. We reign with you. Glory to you, Lord of heaven and earth. In Jesus' name, amen.